Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. God, as we open up your word again today, God, bring a, a fresh revelation. Help us to understand what you want us to receive. As individuals sitting under your presence and the power of your spirit, but also too corporately as a church. God, speak for your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, well, if you've got your Bibles with you and you'd like to open up to Acts 17, we're going to continue on in our series today. We began last week looking back into the gospel, going global. Are you right there, Nora? Excellence. Just making sure that we're all on the same page. Last week we began looking at chapter 16 in the book of Acts and today we come in our series to what is the theme verse of the whole series. Remember Acts 17 verse 6 where it's declared the people in Thessalonica, these people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. It's quite a statement, isn't it? Paul's got a couple of his mates with him. They've taken off on their second missionary journey. Maybe uh, they've heard what's happened in Philippi in Acts 16. And now they're making this statement that these few men are turning the whole world upside down. Let me ask you a question. Has anybody ever said that to you? Have they actually seen a demonstration of your faith lived out in such a way that they would declare, you are turning this community upside down? Vance Havner once said this, we're not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. And so today we come to Acts chapter 17. We're going to use this as a backdrop to what Paul would later write back to this church from Thessalonica. And we're going to look at more details of, of those letters in the weeks ahead as we go from today heading up into Easter. So I've entitled today's message, How to Turn Trials into Triumphs. We're going to look at Acts 17, 1 to 10. As has been the pattern within this series, we've been looking at the historical content of each one of these places that Paul visits. So let's have a look today at Paul in Thessalonica. Then we'll come back and preach the word. According to Acts chapter 17, after Paul and his companions passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they arrived in Thessalonica, now called Thessaloniki, about 35 miles west of Philippi. This is Thessaloniki, a modern city of about one million people, considered the second most important city in all of Greece after Athens. The diverse architecture, including here at Aristotle Square, is a result of the city's central location for the entire region, considered a primary transportation link between Europe and the Middle East. In addition to its commercial importance, Thessaloniki was also a military and political hub. Merchants, traders, 
and refugees from all over the Mediterranean region have settled in Thessaloniki for millennia. When Paul arrived here in about 49 AD, Thessalonica was the capital and most important city of the Roman province of Macedonia. It was strategic and powerful, located at the crossroads of two major trade routes. Thessalonica also had its own harbor on the Aegean. Remains of the ancient harbor are now here under these neighborhoods by the shore. As we've seen at other Mediterranean harbors, silt caused the shoreline to recede over the centuries. Anyway, like many cities of ancient Macedonia, Thessalonica was a walled city. During the Roman period, it also had the typical forum, bath complex, temple to the imperial cult, gymnasium, stadium, an acropolis for defense, and monumental city gates. This awesome tower by the seaside is a fortification that goes back to the 12th century. It was captured and reconstructed by the Ottomans in 1430, becoming a notorious prison and scene of mass executions. Now, the Greeks recaptured Thessaloniki in 1912 and renovated the tower, giving it a full whitewash on the exterior. Now known as the White Tower, it's been adopted as the symbol for Thessaloniki. The ancient ruins of Thessalonica from the time of Paul mostly lie under this modern city. Now the forum visible to us today was rebuilt in the second century AD, but probably directly over the forum from the time of Paul. Now this Odeon, or small theater, also dates to the second century AD. Since there was a Jewish synagogue here in ancient Thessalonica, Paul followed his normal custom of visiting the Jewish congregation here. Now, the first century synagogue has yet to be unearthed, but an ancient inscribed synagogue plaque with lines in both Greek and Samaritan Hebrew has been discovered here. Now, this plaque dates to about the fourth century AD, but throughout the Roman Empire, New synagogues were built directly over older synagogues, so it's still pretty impressive evidence. Through the reasoning of Paul, some of the Jews, many of the God-fearers, and even certain women of the elite believed in the truth of the gospel. Unfortunately, many of the Jews rejected Paul's message and sparked an opposition like he had experienced in other cities. Now, according to Acts chapter 17, the Jews formed a mob, started a riot, and stormed the house of Jason, a recent convert to Christianity. Since they couldn't find Paul and his team, they dragged Jason and some fellow Christians before the city officials and accused them of breaking the laws of Rome, including swearing allegiance to another king. According to Luke, these city officials were known as Politarchs. Now, in the 1800s, an inscription was discovered in ancient Thessalonica revealing the exact same thing, that first century leaders here in Thessalonica were known as Politarchs, just like Luke said. As in other cities before, things were getting dangerous for Paul and his team. So, the believers here in Thessalonica spirited Paul and Silas out of town and sent them on their way. As with other churches that Paul was forced to leave, he wrote a letter back to the church here at Thessalonica. In 51 AD, Paul joined with Silas and Timothy and wrote the first letter to the Thessalonians who were struggling with persecution 
and suffering and the concept of what happens to Christians who die before Jesus returns. Suffice it to say that Paul confirmed that those who die as believers and those who are living as believers when Jesus returns will all be rejoined together in heaven. Later, when Paul was in Corinth, it seems the Thessalonian church continued to struggle with issues related to the so-called end times. In fact, many Christians in Thessalonica believed that Jesus had already returned, so many seemed to have stopped working and doing ministry. They were also being persecuted badly. Paul and his companions wrote another letter to help clear up these misconceptions and comfort them in their distress. The church here in Thessalonica endured initial persecution, but over the years, more and more of the people became Christians. The many Byzantine period churches in Thessalonica, some of which are still standing, demonstrate the positive response to the gospel that Paul and his companions brought here. In particular, the very ancient Church of St. George from around 311 AD attests to how the early Christian community not only survived, but thrived even before the legalization of Christianity in the Roman Empire. During the Byzantine Empire that followed for the next 1,000 years, Thessalonica went on to be the second most important city after Constantinople. I'll never forget ancient Thessalonica, or present-day Thessaloniki. What an incredible place to visit in the history of the early Christian church. Heads up if you've been there. Oh, that would be a wonderful experience, wouldn't it? Hey? That's the last video that we're going to have a look at uh, for a little while in this series as we move in uh, to what Paul wrote uh, to the church, uh, uh, Thessalonians uh, 1 and 2. You know, one of the things that struck me as we uh, go through these things, just as a, a side note, why did they have a gymnasium? Wasn't life hard enough? I know why we have gymnasiums, because we're soft. We got life so easy, but why did they have these gymnasiums? I don't get it. The first thing you notice from that particular video clip too is that many of the other clips that we've looked at, everywhere that we visit, it's in ruins. It's, it's the, uh, uh, the ancient cities that are now in ruins, but uh, Thessalonica is still very much a thriving place. It was actually uh, founded in 315 BC. It's named after Alexander the Great's sister. When Paul visited, there was around about 200,000 people there, and we know today in the Metropolitan Centre, there's around about a million people. So let's uh, get into verse 1 this morning. There is no point to this message. I like saying that. Usually there's three points, isn't there? But what we're going to do is just journey through the text this morning, make some connections into what Paul would speak about in terms of his letters to the church. So verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis, that's a hard word to say, isn't it? I'm glad when we get to uh, Thessalonians, it seems a lot easier to say. And Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. So I want you to understand they travelled on the great Roman road, the Via Ignatia. Yes, it was about a 130 kilometre journey that they would travel from Philippi to uh, Thessaloniki. Passing through these 
other two towns. Notice they don't get much of a mention. Was Paul too busy to plant a church and bring Christ to those communities? No, not at all. There are actually unearthed five different churches within that region that Paul planted on the way. Verse 2. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, over three weeks, the Sabbath was on Saturday, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, the Old Testament, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And so Paul, he was limited to three weeks ministry in the synagogues because uh, over a three-week period, he probably upset enough people with his preaching uh, that it brought persecution. His three-point message, Christ had to suffer, Christ had to die and rise from the dead, and Jesus is the Christ. If you're wondering what uh, Paul did for the rest of the week, You know that old joke about uh, pastors only work one day of the week? We see from his second letter to the church, chapter 3, he writes this. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teachings you have received from us. So Paul appeals to the church He uses the full title, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a little bit like the Ten Commandments. They're not a suggestion. This is not a suggestion. This is a command that we are not idle. So we've got the commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the one who hosts all of the armies of heaven, making this command of us to avoid those who are idle, And to not be idle ourselves. Have you ever noticed that like attracts like? Have you ever noticed that you become like those that you hang around with? We want to be contagious Christians in the positive format. He goes on and he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you. And of course we know in Acts 18 it tells us there that he was a tent maker, wasn't he? He spent his time during the week making tents and providing. We did not eat anyone's bread without paying, but with toil and labour we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. You know, one of my uh, favourite things if you've been here a while is oxymorons. Yeah? Uh, An oxymoron is uh, two contradictory words, isn't it? You know, uh, if you don't know what an oxymoron is, Jumbo means large, shrimp means small. So how do you get jumbo shrimp? One of my uh, girls' favourite oxymorons is fun run. They reckon there's nothing fun about a run. (laughs) What about this one? Deafening silence. That doesn't make sense, doesn't it? Yeah. What about about this one? Has anyone ever said this to you? Oh, you're awfully good. Well, are you awful or are you good? Which one is it? One of my uh, favourites is working vacation. That's an oxymoron, surely to goodness. And the one that Paul's bringing out here is lazy Christian. That is to be an oxymoron in the church, then and today. 
Later on in uh, verse 11, he would say, We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. What do they say? Idle hands is the devil's playground. So to bring them back to order, busy believers are to pull back from lazy loafers. Sounds like a bit of an insult, really, doesn't it? But what he's doing here is he's wanting to use positive peer pressure. You see, this church is a big family. And if people don't work together in close relationship, then we actually start to have a dysfunctional family, don't we? We actually start to then be quite divided. The people over here who are doing everything going, oh, no, those people over there, I don't want to be with those people over there. And those people over there are wanting to just get away with being idle. You know, it's a word here that's only used in the New Testament, idle. It's that of a soldier who steps out of rank, someone who becomes disorderly, uh, a spiritual draft dodger, if you will. And so there was this group within the church that were idle. They were depending on other people to do everything. And we've always got won't-do people in the life of the church, haven't we? We've always got those who expect everybody else to serve them. And Paul says everybody in the church needs to encourage them to change. We've got to warn the wayward. I don't know about you, but uh, not many people like to confront others with their own behaviour, do they? You know, uh, I think uh, probably most of you sitting here would think, well, surely that's your job, Andrew. Isn't that what we pay you for? You be the bad guy, we'll be the good guys. But it actually talks here about we're all responsible to encourage people to change. It's not an easy job. It's not a fun job. But it's a job that everybody in the church needs to be committed to. Because when you are together in this church family, what it does is it strengthens our relationships. It encourages one another. And then we have a good, strong, fit, healthy church family. So during the week... Paul's not idle, he's making tents then on Saturday, he's off to the synagogue to speak the scriptures. And Paul deals with what is a stumbling block to the Jews. The Jews don't mind thinking about a Messiah, and if that's Jesus, it's okay, as long as he is someone who is magnified. They like the idea of seeing Jesus ride on in the white horse, yeah? Like in the line of David, defeating the Roman Empire and restoring Israel to its rightful place and bringing peace in the land. But this whole idea of a suffering saviour, someone who would be persecuted and dead, that's not appealing to them at all. They considered that offensive. And yet it's in the scriptures, isn't it? We see that over and over, don't we? That Jesus, the Christ, must come and suffer for us. He must die on the cross in order to save us from our sins. But you see, they read their scriptures much the same as we read ours. Selectively. I don't want to be reading those scriptures that say I'm a sinner. I don't want to be confronted with, oh, you're going to have to change your attitude here and your character development there. I'm not interested in that. What about this persecution and suffering? No, 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 no. I'm going to read the scriptures that say God loves me. God wants to bless me. He wants to prosper me. He's only got good things for me. 
and I've got this wonderful home in heaven. And that's the way that they were. They were jumping over these scriptures that talked about a Messiah that would suffer. So Paul, he opens up the scriptures. We don't know where he started, but we might start with Isaiah 53. It's one of those ones that resonates with us. He, our Messiah, was despised and rejected. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. And by his wounds we are healed. You've got no idea what a revelation that would have been to the people in the synagogue that particular day. Perhaps he moved to Psalm 22 verse 1. Psalm 22 are the words that Jesus said on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 22 is all about the agony and the suffering death of our Saviour. Then maybe he went to one of those resurrection passages from Psalm 16 verse 10. For you will not permit your Holy One to see corruption. Isn't that great? But you know, if you shared the gospel in your community today, I think the toughest nuts to crack are very much like those who are uh, the religious people of our day. They're the ones who are set in their ways. The ones who have already decided what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false. They're prejudiced, they're hard-headed, they're hard to reach because they've already made those sorts of decisions. And you know, it's getting harder and harder and harder. I think a lot of this sort of stuff happens with our kids today. As soon as we send them off to school, they're indoctrinated into a particular way of thinking and a particular belief system, a secular faith that determines what they think as they grow up. We've got uh, CRE no longer in the schools and yet quite often schools will invite ancient Eastern religions to come in and and share what that's all about. Christianity's been dismissed. When you talk to a lot of kids today, they've got no idea what the real meaning of Christmas and Easter is all about because there is this gap. And with no Christian presence, the kids get indoctrinated into all sorts of different cults that we make up in our world today. I uh, don't want to push in too much. But the cult of climate change. Kids are taught today that it is a scientific fact of global warming and you cannot have any other opinion other than this opinion. And if you don't believe in uh, climate change, you watch how they will attack your faith. But in verse 3, some of the Jews were persuaded meaning they were convinced of this truth. Somehow God by his spirit has broken into their lives and they joined Paul and Silas and a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And again, the, the prominence of women, we saw that last week, didn't we? These were educated Greek Gentile women who were able to push the gospel forward. 
So the church was birthed in about three weeks. Some believed the truth, but then in verse 5, but other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters, some bad dudes from the marketplace. You see, that's where you find the idol, yeah? In the marketplace. That's literally what it says here in the Greek, the loafers in the marketplace. They would often go to the marketplace early in the morning to see if they could get some employment, but if not, they just hung around there all day. They formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. So the Jews are jealous, they decide to recruit some rabble to uh, start a riot, yeah? And they find them in the marketplace. Thugs. Uh, what's another word for them? Hoods. They manipulate the crowd. You know, have you ever stirred up a crowd? Yeah? They gather them around. And have, you ever, have you ever been somewhere and everything seems alright to you and then somebody gets in your ear? Yeah? And all of a sudden they say something and all of a sudden you're agitated. And you're thinking, yeah, hang on a minute, that's right, I never thought about it like that before. And so often when you're uh, getting all riled up, what is actually wrong suddenly seems like it's very, very right. And this crowd of idle thugs were able to stir up the people. And then what do they do? Who's doing that? What's going? And they point to Paul and Silas. These young men. We see this happen in Jesus' time, didn't we? You know, remember in John 19, chapter 5? Yeah? Jesus was before Pilate. Pilate wanted to let him go. But what happened is the Pharisees, the religious leaders, stirred up the crowd, didn't they? And it says, then Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. That type of, maybe Lydia sold that robe. Pilate said to them, here is the man. When the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! And that's exactly what these people were stirring the mob up to do with uh, Paul and Silas. Try to resist the mob, they will retaliate. Verse 6, they rushed to Jason's house, Jason, Hebrew, Joshua, in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. No doubt Paul probably started a house church in, in uh, Jason's uh, uh, home. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials shouting, These men! And really they're, they're not talking about those men, they're really talking about Paul and Silas who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. So it's always sort of guilty by association, isn't it? Two things they were accused of. They were accused of being notorious troublemakers because, remember, news travels fast. But remember, they're talking about the world being upside down, yeah? Remember that the world has been upside down since the fall. And Christianity comes to put the world right way up. Then verse 7. They are all, all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. So a false charge is made, yeah? They're saying that uh, Jesus is declaring himself something that he is not, that he is taking authority. Remember they had to say, Caesar is Lord. That was, that was what was required of them by law. 
And so these guys are twisting it a little bit to make it seem like they're saying you have to say Jesus is Lord. That there is another king on the throne. Of course, Christ's kingdom is spiritual. It encompasses the whole of humanity. Whether people want to acknowledge it or not, they're actually in uh, Christ's kingdom. He is Lord of all things. But they interpret it as a challenge to the authority of Caesar. Verse 8. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. I want you to understand what's going on here. Uh, It wasn't that they posted bond for Paul and Silas and let them go. Otherwise, in verse 10, we're going to see that they're going to leave town. So they would be bail jumpers, wouldn't they? And we know that Paul and Silas would never break the law, that they would come under the, the justice system. So what's going on here is that Jason was asked to post bond, to pay a price and say that Paul and Silas to guarantee that they would never come to Thessalonica again. And so in verse 10, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. And we see that. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 18, For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan had blocked the way. See, he had been hindered from coming uh, because of this guarantee that they wouldn't come back again. So if Paul couldn't get to them personally, what did he do? He sent someone as his representative. You know, Christ comes to us and he asks us to be his representative. And there's different ways, you know, if you're prevented from going to somebody today, there's different ways that you can communicate with them. Felice brought it up. You can get out your typewriter. It's probably a keyboard now. You can pick up the phone. You can even send them a video these days. You can get on Facebook and you can get on Snapchat. You can get on all sorts of different ways to communicate and you can even use the old pen and paper. You see, Paul didn't let the devil hinder him. He couldn't get there. So where did he go? He went to Berea and he went to Athens and he went on to Corinth, didn't he? Can you imagine the devil? When he thought he'd got rid of Paul out of Thessalonica and suddenly he pops up in Berea and now he's preaching to those influential people there. The devil would have thought, oh man, what have I done? I should have just left him there. You see, whenever the devil tries to hinder you, you've got to live your life in such a way that he will think he's messed up. Folks, be encouraged. Satan is a defeated foe. He has no power and no authority over your life that you don't give him. It's a little bit like a police officer, isn't it? Yeah? police officer, they don't wear a uniform, they're just a normal person like you and I. I don't know if the police are normal anyway, but you know what I mean. They put on that uniform, yeah? And they can walk out in front of your car and they can say, stop! In the name of the law! You come to a screeching halt? I hope you come to a screeching halt. (laughs) They don't have any authority in and of themselves, do they? They've only got authority that's been given to them through the government. You and I, we're to be dressed in the armour of God. 
Yeah? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And we are his representatives. Yeah? We're the ones who, under his authority, say, stop in the name of the Lord. And we have the power within us to defeat the devil. Every scheme can be torn down simply by wearing the armour of God. Someone said this, he can despise you but he cannot devour you. He can delay you but he cannot delete you. He can depress you but he cannot deprive you. He can demoralise you but he cannot devastate you. One of my favourite verses is 1 John 4 verse 4. Greater is he, the Holy Spirit who is in you, Christ in you. Greater is he than he, the devil, who is in the world. Folks, the devil has no power. Jesus defeated him on the cross. See, he's angry, he's upset, he's snarly, yeah? But Jesus has removed, if you think of him like a roaring lion, he's removed his two big front teeth. He knows that he's on his way to hell. And he wants to take as many with him as he can. But you and I, we can live in victory. So one of the important facts here is that Paul left before he really wanted to. The church was only maybe a few weeks, a few months old. He was leaving these handful of baby Christian believers, vulnerable in the faith. Yeah? The devil roaring around looking to devour these baby Christians within this centre of pagan uh, community. So after leaving, he goes to Athens. And from Athens, he sends Timothy back and he moves on to Corinth. And then from there, 1 Thessalonians 3, he writes, We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. See, these trials, they come in our lives, don't they, as, as testing, you know. James would write, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because we know that it's developing our faith and faith brings about our perseverance. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted and it turned out that way as you well know. Folks, you always got to remember, there is persecution in the world today. But it's not so much about what happens to us, but how we respond to what happens. So you might be asking yourself this morning, well, where do I need to persevere? Where do I need to, to just keep moving forward in faith? Where do I need to keep claiming that authority that Christ has given to me? Because I want you to know that your victory might only be hours away. C.S. Lewis wrote this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. Suffering is God's megaphone to awake a sleeping world. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not going to be immune to pain and suffering. If Paul was run out of town. His only crime was he was preaching good news. He was preaching how much God loves you. Yeah, get out of here. We don't want to be hearing any of that. But you know, in Matthew 5, verse 10, Jesus teaches how to triumph over trials. 
He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because of right living. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I'm amazed Paul didn't write that. Hey? I can hear him say amen to that. Of course, no one likes to talk about being persecuted, do they? Sounds a bit hypocritical to say blessed, fortunate, happy are those who are persecuted. And yet the reality is it's not if you get persecuted, it's when you're going to be persecuted for your faith. It will happen. Remember last week we talked about no one gets to live a comfortable Christian life. No one gets out of here alive. Everything is going to come against us at some point. And so the importance here of making sure that you are prepared for what's coming. You know, when you buy a new car, anybody ever bought a new car? There are things that come standard in your new car, aren't they? And then there are what we call optional extras. Let me say this to you. Persecution comes standard to the Christian faith. John Stott said this. We should not be surprised if anti-Christian hostility increases, but rather surprised if it does not. The Osberg Confessions of uh, 1530 define church as this. The community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. You see, Jesus is saying, when you reflect my character into the world today, you will face the same persecution I did. Intense persecution, it's in the world today, isn't it? Even though we might not feel it here. Eugene Peterson, I like the way he paraphrases it in the, uh, in the Message Bible. He says, Jesus says this, Count yourself blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. So there's a bit of a paradox there, isn't there? Between persecution and being glad. You see, you don't pretend that it's not painful, the persecution that you go through. But someone said that persecution, it's the certificate of Christian authenticity. So we rejoice in the fact and be glad when you're persecuted it means that people actually see Christ in you. And when you suffer, I don't know about you, but there's times in my life when everything's going well and Jesus who? Can I say that? Everything's going well. But when I suffer, when there's trials, when there's struggles, when people aren't doing well, that's when... Christ shows up. That's when his power is actually released. Some of you might not like what I'm about to say, but uh, we need that sort of persecution in our lives to see the gospel move forward. It was the persecution that spread the gospel in the early church, wasn't it? And I think it's the lack of persecution that prevents the spread of the gospel in Australia today. So sooner or later, these brand new Christians, they were left alone uh, in Thessaloniki all by themselves and the bottom dropped out. 
They were being persecuted by religious authorities. They would have been segregated from their family who were still committed to Judaism. And because they're young in their faith, there's all these trials going on. They start to doubt. You know, if you're under pressure in life, you start to doubt, is Jesus real? Is this God that we're supposed to be following? Can he come through? And when you doubt, you start to get discouraged. And when you are discouraged, that's the very time that you drop out. And it's why Paul sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. And one of the best ways we can encourage one another is to keep praising one another, to keep speaking positive words into each one another's lives. I was uh, reminded this week of a, an old song and it's been going through my mind ever since I uh, brought it up on Thursday. 1873, Daniel Kelly, he was living in Kansas and he wrote the words to the song, Home on the Range. Home, home on the range where the deer and the antelope play. Young people, you know that song? The verse I like is, where seldom is heard a discouraging word. I was probably thinking because he was out on the plains of Kansas, you know, uh, deer and antelope don't talk back. That's probably why there was no discouragement at that point in time. But let me ask you this, are you an encourager? When people are around you, would they say of you, where seldom is heard a discouraging word? I think probably the best encourager in the Bible was Barnabas, wasn't it? That wasn't his real name. His real name was Joseph. His nickname was Barnabas, son of encouragement. Why do you think Paul took him everywhere he went? You can imagine Paul feeling, oh, this is going well. Yeah, listen, brother, come on, keep going. We can do it. It's love to have an encourager around, isn't it? You know, if people were to follow you around and by the actions and the words and the temperament and your character, what nickname would they give you? You know, the uh, Greek word for encouragement is a word that means to come alongside. That's just simply what God wants us to do. He wants us to come alongside one another. To encourage is to put courage in. When you're under trials, when life is straining, when you feel persecuted, you need to have that brother and sister who will come alongside and put the courage back in you. You ever gotten up Monday morning, get out to the car, nothing. The battery is flat. What do you do? You ring someone. And that someone, that mate comes along and they get your car and their car and they pop the bonnet and they get the jumper leads and they put their positive into your negative and you roar back to life. That's exactly what we're to do with one another. We're to come alongside. We're to put that encouragement back into people so that they can perform better, so that they can keep going as long as they possibly can. I think people gravitate towards encouragement, don't they? We love to be around encouragers. You know, tremendous power is released when we encourage one another. And yet, one of the things I always like to remind myself is, it costs you no more to give an encouraging word than a discouraging one. You know, some people love to put you down. They love to put you in your box. They love to keep you in that position so that they have authority and power over you. You want to surround yourself. You know, we've only got a limited capacity for people. 
You want to make sure you surround yourself with people that are going to keep building you up each and every week. So whose faith can you jumpstart this week? Where can you put courage into somebody to just keep going? They might be in the midst of that trial and they just need you to come alongside them and say, come on, you can do it. Jumpstart their lives to have a trial into a triumph. The challenge, I think, is not to wait for someone to encourage you. No one's encouraging me, Andrew, you don't understand. Be an encourager. Ask for a spirit of encouragement. So Timothy, he would eventually report back to Paul that the church was under intense persecution and pressure to cave in to the culture and community that they lived in around them. There were some moral and doctrinal issues that were confusing the early church around Christ's return, around what happens to believers if they die before Jesus comes again. And so with this in mind, Paul writes to this church two letters in order to encourage them, to exhort them, to keep moving forward in the midst of persecution. He was there in 49. He wrote in 51. It's some of the earliest letters that we have to the church. The theme, how to live the Christian life while you wait on Christ's second coming. Because what we hope for shapes what we live for. So until Christ's return. We know we're living in an upside-down world that we should be trying to live upright lives. So we're going to take some time over the next uh, uh, few weeks as we lead up to Easter to think about what does the Holy Spirit want to say to us as a church today? The Church of Jesus Christ here in Bendigo. It's It's a letter that was written in the first century But it's a letter that needs to be written to our church 21 centuries on. To this church community so that we can continue to live a triumphant life in the midst of trials as we wait on Christ's return. So that's where we're going to go over the next few weeks. I'm not going to preach verse by verse through uh, Thessalonians. But we're just going to jump into passages where Paul addresses the church in specific situations. Why don't you stand with me? The worship team's going to come back and we're going to finish.